Welcome to Present Value. Hey, Present Value listeners. Eli Beanstalk from the Law School here. As a JD MBA dual degree student at both Johnson and Cornell Law School, I'm excited to be making a guest introduction of this episode's conversation between Jack Moriarty and one of our law school's very own, Professor Saleh Amarova. The episode begins with a recap of financial reform after the 2008 crash, covers some of the nuances of the public-private balance in finance, and finally ends with a deep dive into fintech and some of its often overlooked implications for both antitrust and financial system stability. Professor Amrova has produced incredible thought leadership in the space and has testified before multiple congressional committees about these issues. And with that, I'm thrilled to introduce Present Value with Jack Moriarty and Saleh Amarova. Jack Moriarty here, excited to be hosting for the first time. We have Professor Saleh Amarova in the studio with us. Professor Amarova is a professor of law and public policy at Cornell Law School, where she is co-director of the Jack Clark Institute for the Study and Practice of Business Law. She earned a diploma from Moscow State University, went on to receive her PhD in political science from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and then earned a JD from Northwestern University School of Law. She specializes in the regulation of financial institutions, banking law, securities regulation, as well as international and corporate finance. Prior to academia, Professor Amrova practiced law in the Financial Institutions Group of Davis, Polk, and Wardwell, a premier New York law firm, where she specialized in a wide variety of corporate transactions and advisory work in the area of financial regulation. From 2006 to 2007, she served at the U.S. Department of the Treasury as a special advisor for regulatory policy to the Undersecretary for Domestic Finance. Professor Amarova, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Jack. Professor, you've written extensively on the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, the major piece of U.S. financial reform following the financial crash of 2008. Since financial system regulation is going to be a big theme of our conversation, can you start by explaining Dodd-Frank at a high level and how it approached the causes of the financial crisis? Sure. So uh, you're absolutely right. The Dodd-Frank Act was enacted in 2010 in reaction to the arguably worst financial crisis this country has seen since at least the 1930s. And the key provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act were meant to address some of the lessons that that crisis brought to the foreground, right? And the basic lesson of uh, the global financial crisis of 2008 was that in all previous decades since the 1930s, when uh, in the United States we've basically developed a system of federal oversight of financial securities, uh, financial services sector, the entire premise of uh, the financial sector oversight was based on this sort of notion that if we look uh, in particular, for example, at uh, how securities firms operate and how banks operate, how insurance companies operate, and we regulate each type of an entity, a bank or a uh, an investment bank or an insurance uh, provider, uh, according to a particular set of rules, with respect to a particular set of risks that we perceive to be prevalent in a particular type of an industry, then overall the financial system will essentially fulfill its functions as well as can be expected. And the problem with that approach was that it was too micro, too entity-level based approach. In other words, when the banking regulators, for example, were looking at balance sheets and other financial statements of uh, an individual commercial bank, 
they were perfectly able perhaps to assess the quality of individual loans or other assets that that bank carried on its balance sheet. However, they were not able to see how the value of those assets was dependent, for example, on behavior of other actors in the system, because that simply wasn't baked into the kind of supervision and kind of regulation that we used to know, for the most part, prior to 2010. And during the crisis, what became evident was that sometimes problems that accumulate in certain parts of the financial market that are not directly overseen as part of the banking system, for example, nevertheless are tied to the problems that are accumulating in the regulated banking sector, but escapes attention of bank regulators. For example, uh, things like accumulation of excessive leverage and risk in the securitization market, right? On the one hand, you didn't have to be a regulated bank to be a major player in that sector. But at the same time, what banks were doing by extending loans, by extending mortgage loans to uh, various borrowers who shouldn't have gotten those loans, was uh, a major factor in how the securitized markets exploded in the run-up to the uh, to the financial crisis. But nobody was looking at those uh, at those particular players. Nobody was looking at companies like, for example, Countrywide, right? Because Countrywide didn't happen to be under the aegis of uh, the Federal Reserve or the FDIC or the OCC or anything like that. And so when the crisis hit, suddenly everybody realized that, look, you know, you can't just let AIG fail or Lehman Brothers fail and think, oh, you know, at least uh, JP Morgan, the bank, is going to be safe or Citibank is going to be safe because those uh, entities are uh, really strictly overseen and strictly supervised. Because what happened was we realized that through various trading linkages, those all of those entities were very closely connected. And so in the Dodd-Frank Act, Congress tried to introduce a more explicitly systemic, a more explicitly macro perspective on financial regulation as a unified enterprise rather than a collection of separate regulatory schemes like securities regulation, like banking regulation, like insurance regulation. And without supplanting those separate specialized functional regulatory schemes, creating a level of kind of system-wide oversight. So that is the major change in what might be called the regulatory philosophy underlying the overall system of financial regulation. Now, the question, of course, is how far did the change really go? Because in reality, when you're faced with this task of changing the system that has existed for decades and has created institutional structures and vested interests and expectations, not to mention you know, entire bodies of laws and regulations and interpretations and precedent around those interpretations, it's very difficult to kind of step way outside of the existing framework and uh, look at the most fundamental assumptions underlying that framework. So in many ways, uh, what the Dodd-Frank did was just, it took the existing micro-prudential, micro-level regulatory tools and simply tried to scale them up to some kind of a macro-level. For example, one of the fundamental micro-level tools of uh, bank regulation in the United States before the crisis was so-called capital adequacy regulation when bank regulators were looking at the balance sheet of each individual bank and we're looking at the equity cushion or regulatory capital cushion that each bank had and try to figure out is that cushion sufficient to protect the creditors of that particular bank, including depositors, for example, from the sudden loss in the value of the bank's assets that are notoriously opaque and notoriously volatile. 
And so there are specific mandatory ratios that each bank had to meet, but the inquiry was essentially based on the balance sheet of that individual bank. So in the aftermath of the crisis under the Dodd-Frank regime and the so-called Basel III international capital adequacy framework that uh, underlies all of the capital regulation in the United States for the banking sector, the new approach was to retain that kind of capital ratio approach. However, to enable the regulators, for example, to institute additional requirements for additional buffers, capital buffers, in other words, increase the mandatory cushion of equity to allow for things like systemic significance of a particular bank, right? If a particular bank has trillion dollars uh, in assets, for example, and plays the critical role in the clearing system and settlement system and the payment system in the United States, then it's probably not commensurate with the risk of its failure just to look at the value of its assets as they appear on the balance sheet and apply some kind of risk factors, right? It's probably important to add some additional requirement of a cushion. So in that sense, it is the post-crisis capital regulation in the financial sector is more explicitly macro in its orientation because it's trying to look at the systemic significance of individual entities. And yet the very DNA of that regulatory approach is still very much entity-based micro-level one. So what this kind of standard regulatory approach is doing is taking a micro-level approach to evaluating systemic stability, things like keeping an eye on the balance sheet of an individual financial institution, but that approach misses some of the more problematic sources of systemic risk, which are fundamentally macro-oriented. And as I understand it, this creates an incentive for financial institutions to engage in regulatory arbitrage? Yes, that's absolutely correct. The problem with this micro-level approach is that it naturally leads to the silo-based regulatory framework. In other words, you try to categorize each set of financial institutions and each market in which these financial institutions operate as a particular category, a particular box. So if you put every financial institution and every set of financial instruments in a particular box, chances are that given the pace of financial innovation in the several decades before the crisis, there will be some important gaps between those boxes, between those categories in which various instruments, like for example, derivatives or certain structured products would fall, that they're not necessarily securities per se, they're not necessarily banking products per se, but there's some kind of a product that could fulfill functions of both. And that's the problem with derivatives, of course. And we know how for a long time, there was a, a huge regulatory fight with respect to who is going to oversee the derivatives market. Should it be the securities regulator, the SEC, or the commodities regulator, the CFTC, or should it be the Fed? Similarly with financial institutions. If the institution, for example, does not have a charter as a bank, but nevertheless is engaging in the type of financial activity that should properly, functionally be regulated as a banking activity, and yet is not overseen by bank regulators, then that particular institution could actually attract a lot more money in order to grow that market without the cost or the burden of regulatory oversight. And that's the essence of uh, regulatory arbitrage. Investors and financial institutions helping investors to invest their money, they always look for those pockets in the financial markets where the profit can be made with minimum costs, including regulatory costs. And so a lot of activity would flow 
from the strictly regulated sectors into less regulated so-called shadow banking sectors. And that's exactly what we saw in the run-up to the financial crisis. Let's move to one of the key questions that arises in any public policy debate involving regulation, which is the role of the government versus the role of the private sector. You've written explicitly about the importance of the public-private balance in the context of finance. Can you walk us through how you think about this relationship? In order to overcome this kind of myopia that is built into the very institutional structure of financial regulation in the United States, it's not sufficient to simply declare our commitment to looking at systemic risk per se, because it's very difficult to define what exactly systemic risk means in such a fragmented regulatory structure or institutional structure. So what's required is to step back, way back, and look at the fundamental underlying assumptions about how the financial system in general operates. For decades, we've been thinking about the essence of finance or the financial system as what is called financial intermediation, right? So private individuals or entities that have surplus funds, they saved money or they've uh, generated extra, extra profits from providing services and selling their goods, they have that capital available for investment in the enterprise run by entrepreneurs and various companies who need that capital. And financial institutions are essentially sitting in the middle of that individual-to-individual or one-to-one transaction and help to channel the flow of capital from the surplus units to deficit units. So that's the essence of financial intermediation. And of course, in that conceptual scheme, financial intermediation can be performed by a variety of actors. It doesn't have to be a regulated bank. It could be a securities firm. It could be an, an unregulated entity. The problem with that approach is that it's missing the more fundamental relationship that undergirds and underwrites the flow of finance in the financial system. And that's the relationship between the private actors, private market participants as a whole on the one hand, and the public, the sovereign public, as represented uh, primarily by the central bank and the fiscal authority and various other public instrumentalities on the other hand. So in my work that I co-authored with Professor Bob Hockett, friend of the podcast. Yes, and he's a colleague of mine at Cornell Law School. In our shared work, we have developed this concept of the financial system as essentially a hybrid public-private partnership, as a franchise of sorts, if you will. In other words, we trace the dynamics of the flow of capital in the financial system, not on that micro level from one particular set of investors to a particular set of users of capital, issuers of securities or borrowers or so on and so forth, but on a macro systemic structural level as the flow of essentially securitized and monetized full faith and credit of the sovereign public of the United States, which is all of us collectively. And the role of central bank, in our case, it's the Federal Reserve, of course, is essential in that sense. And if you look at the financial system from that truly macrostructural perspective, then a lot of the dynamics in the financial services sector from a regulatory perspective becomes much more clear. For example, it becomes clear that the essential tenet of the regulatory philosophy that we used to have and uh, subscribe to before the crisis and continue to subscribe to even under the Dodd-Frank regime is that There is a fundamental division of labor between the public and the private. The role of the private actors, private market participants, whoever they are, banks or non-banks, investors, funds, whoever they are, 
is to find the best, most efficient, most effective uses for the capital. In other words, to allocate capital, to channel the flow of funds in the financial system to their most productive uses in the real economy. That's the ostensible goal, the function of private investors. And uh, the idea behind it is that private actors are best positioned to make these types of decisions because they're right there local on the ground and they have the greatest understanding of uh, how to process, how to gather information on the ground. And they have uh, the best incentives, personal incentives to really do their due diligence properly because they derive private benefit from executing such transactions. And the public's role in that public-private franchise is to support the overall operation of the financial system, of the financial market, by providing the macro stability of the entire structure. You can call it public goods, for example, like financial stability, right? No individual bank, no individual investor, no matter how big or important, can provide stability of the entire financial system. That is a collective task. That is a collective action problem. It's, it's a collective good, whatever you call it. But that is the role of the sovereign public. And we in this country, we have divided that function of providing financial stability among a variety of public instrumentalities, including the central bank, including various financial regulators, and so on and so forth. So that system of dividing the kind of the task of allocating capital, therefore creating financial instruments, creating financial risks that flow throughout the system, and backing up that system and accommodating those privately created risks and liabilities, but by essentially pledging the full faith and credit of the United States to support the flow of money, the flow of capital in that system. That balance inherently contains the seeds of a problem, and that problem is known as the moral hazard, right? So, for example, if, uh, if you're a parent and you have a teenage child and you give that child a credit card, right, and you give them the freedom to make purchases online of books and other materials that they might need for their educational purposes, but you don't check those credit card balances. You don't check how much the child spends and what they spend that money on, and you simply rely on what they tell you about their spending habits, then soon enough, you will be presented with a bill for that credit card that you may or may not be able to pay. So once that happens, you might actually want to institute certain stricter rules with respect to how you control the spending habits of your child who has that credit card. So in some sense, the sovereign public found itself in 2008 in the position of that parent who maybe trusted a little bit too much. They are very bright and very precocious children with its credit card. And the truth is, because you're a parent of that child, you can't withdraw your support. It's not good to say, oh, let these children learn and, you know, fall on their own. If they go bankrupt, let them go bankrupt. That's not how a family works, right? You're responsible for their, for their upbringing and for their well-being. It's part of being part of the family. And similarly, it is no good to say in order to avoid moral hazard, what you need to do is completely withdraw public support from private financial institutions like banks. That's not how the franchise works. Unfortunately, we cannot simply cut off that public support, but what we can do is we can rethink the balance of control over the credit allocation decisions that is taking place currently in the financial system so that it's not completely outside of the reach of the sovereign public that ultimately has to back up those risks. 
And I realize that it sounds very abstract and probably quite radical, but in reality it's not. And it needs not to be. It needs not be so radical or so abstract. In reality, what we're talking about here is just infusing, for example, the oversight of financial markets and financial institutions with this understanding of the responsibility on the part of the public instrumentalities, be it the central bank, in its function as a financial regulator or in its role as a monetary um, authority, monetary policy entity, to think about how certain micro-level developments in finance that may be beneficial from a micro-perspective. It may be beneficial to individual transacting parties or even to individual transacting institutions and maybe even to a whole sector of the market may not be quite so unequivocally beneficial to the society as a whole. If you think about the need for the society as a whole ultimately to bear the risks of failure in those markets that perhaps are heightened as a result of this micro-efficiency enhancing developments in the financial sector. And this seems to speak to sort of a visibility asymmetry, where we don't necessarily see continuous government involvement in constituting these financial markets and providing public goods until the system fails and that credit card bill comes due. Jack, you're absolutely right. And you actually hit the nail right on the head. It's very easy to keep spending money when you are just using plastic card, right? Because you don't really see physical cash leaving your hand. Maybe if we always paid with cash right there at the point of purchase, maybe we would have spent less money. And there's some research to that effect, for example, right? How people's kind of spending habits are affected by how visible the impact on their bottom line really is. And similarly, with respect to the financial system as a whole, when the government is in the background, the whole point of the government being in the background, if it is successful, is not to be visible, is to be that sort of the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. Everybody in front of the curtain, all the actors on the stage, the banks, the securities firms, the investors, the fund managers, the individual traders, everybody who's up front, they're doing their jobs and they're playing their game and they're showing how brilliant they are, how talented they are and how great they are at finding the greatest investment opportunities for their clients, for themselves. And everything works perfectly well. Why? Because nobody ever doubts the value of the U.S. dollar, for example, that exchanges hands in front of that curtain right there on the stage. But who maintains the value of that dollar? Who maintains the value of the promise that stands behind that U.S. dollar, the promise of the United States of America to honor all of its liabilities, no matter when they're presented to it, right? And that is the role of the public. That is the role of the central bank, the treasury, of all of us together. But none of it is visible, and so it's very easy to think of the world of finance as purely private sphere, the sphere in which private actors take private money and move it through private channels to benefit various private institutions or individuals, and then in the aggregate, quite mechanically, all of those private micro-benefits will add up to a definite macro-public good. But it doesn't work that way. And so when the system breaks down, because individual micro-level operators simply cannot see or keep in their minds or even care enough about the public good and macro benefit at all times, sometimes they overstep the boundaries of what is prudent for everybody taken together. 
And that's when the public has to step forward. But when it steps forward, it becomes this moment that is highly politicized. It's salient because that's the moment when that bill arrives. And then everybody's looking around and asking, so who is taking that bill in their hand? And it's the parent. But when the parent comes in, the children, the teenagers in the room get offended. It's like, wait a minute, I thought it was my decision. So, you know, I, I thought it was my game. But it's not always the, the case. So in 2008, the most visible manifestation of the public actually stepping forward and bearing naked kind of for all to see its role as the ultimate underwriter of all those risks that have been created privately through the decades of financial innovation and whatnot was the bailouts, right? The TARP program when Congress actually had to set money aside to make capital injections into the banking institutions to set up various liquidity facilities, not just for the banks, but also for money market funds, for securities firms, and for pretty much everybody out there in the financial markets. Those quote-unquote big boys that prior to 2008 did not want to be regulated by the government because they said the government didn't know enough how to actually conduct their financial business. And they were the smarter ones. They were the more agile ones. They were the more experienced and sophisticated players. Suddenly, when the whole game just came to a halt, the government had to come out. And that's when we see as a public, we suddenly see the true relationship between the public and the private sides of the financial market. And this is not to say that only the public plays an important role in the world of finance and private actors do not create any good or any benefit for anybody else. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that it's very dangerous to forget the need to maintain the proper balance between the private actor's freedom to generate financial instruments, financial risks, financial claims, to allocate credit and money flows to particular uses in the economy on the one hand and the public's responsibility to keep an eye on the overall impact of those individual decisions on the stability of the financial and ultimately economic system because the fallout from this financial crisis of 2008 went far beyond just individual financial institutions or investors or anything like that even beyond our 401ks that ultimately recovered their value, it really caused a recession that continues to this day. And a lot of people lost their jobs and a lot of this economic vitality is taking a lot of time to come back and might never come back. So crises are in some sense a cathartic moment and also a moment of intense self-reflection in which uh, suddenly we as a society understand what's going on in the financial system. Unfortunately, then we just as quickly can forget about that. And we do forget as soon as the new shiny object comes along and promises us a quick fix to all of the problems that we've experienced in our political and regulatory realms. I'd love to switch gears and talk about fintech. Fintech is generating a lot of excitement in the media and certainly here in business school. Much of this excitement comes from some of the opportunities to democratize financial services and better serve communities that have been historically excluded from the financial system. Can you give us a sense of some of the potential benefits of fintech, but also help us think through some of its risks? You are absolutely correct. Fintech is right now the hottest topic in the world of finance and financial regulation. Effectively, 
every day you open up any kind of trade publication or in any kind of academic publication on the matter, you will see at least something about either cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or artificial intelligence or robot advising or whatever it is. It's really a very, very exciting time for the world of finance because it opens up a new set of opportunities, just like you said, for creating new types of instruments that are available to new segments of the population for making things faster, more convenient. And we all like things that are faster and more convenient because we want basically to manage the entirety of our lives uh, via iPhone these days. And unfortunately, or fortunately, regulated financial institutions like banks, for example, are frequently quite constrained in the kinds of services they are able or allowed or even willing to provide. Because every time a bank, a regulated entity, for example, offers a new type of a service to a client or brings a new type of a client into the fold and tries to serve that new type of a client, there is a whole system of rules and regulations that applies to that activity that the bank has to comply with, and that costs money. And then there is also liability. There is a regulators can punish a bank for, for example, not checking sufficiently the background of the new clients, new customers that the bank is beginning to serve. And so the bank is really reluctant sometimes to take on certain customers that maybe reside in jurisdictions in which the bank is not entirely comfortable with, you know, the laws and what's going on and how can I verify the identity of this particular customer or whatnot. I'd rather not touch that particular transaction. And of course, that creates all kinds of frictions. It creates all kinds of difficulties for people like us when we want to transact across borders. And these are not just state borders, geographic borders, right? If I want to send money to my relatives somewhere in uh, Central Asia, for example, that might take a long time because my bank here in Ithaca would have to engage in with a larger correspondent bank somewhere in New York then then has a relationship with some kind of a big bank somewhere in Central Asia and so on and so forth in order for me to transfer even $100 to my relatives. And each bank along the way has to comply with a bunch of regulations, which means they're going to pass the cost of that compliance on to me. So I have to pay a fee, and my relative somewhere in Central Asia would have to wait for quite a long time, maybe sometimes several days, before they're able to take the money out, the money that I send them. And we don't like that because we know that with current technology, actually it should be possible to just, through a click of a button, to transfer, effectuate that transfer of money almost immediately. And so that's where FinTech came in. And the non-bank companies, the technology companies said, look, the bottleneck here is really technological, but the bottleneck here is also regulatory. So we can provide technology. We could sell that technology to banks. Banks could also develop similar technology in-house. The problem with the banks is that, that they're afraid and sometimes their hands are tied because of rules and regulations, and they're really not willing to sacrifice their own kind of regulatory status or protection from liability for the sake of servicing their clients. But we, technology companies, we are not worried about that. We are not regulated. We are not subject to these costs. And as long as we don't steal money from you and you trust us, and as long as everybody understands what's going on, we can basically take your money 
transfer it across any border, be it a geographic border, be it a sectoral border, whatever legal boundary that regulated institutions have a hard time crossing, we can cross it very quickly because we have technology to essentially create a new space, new virtual space, new digital space, and you know make safe and quick transactions for you. And that's where this new technology sort of uh, poses sort of almost an existential challenge to the financial services sector as we know today. What should regulated financial institutions do in this situation? Should they try to compete with the fintech companies? How do they compete with fintech companies if the playing field is not level to begin with? So one situation would be that the banks and other regulated financial institutions might try to convince the regulators and Congress to relax regulatory constraints that exist currently that prevent them from taking on any transaction and basically moving money across all these borders very quickly and do it just as easily as any kind of technology provider does. That could be a good thing, very convenient for all of us customers, but it could create a whole host of problems on a systemic level because one can imagine how a huge internationally active bank like JP Morgan, for example, could start moving a lot of money very, very quickly. And some of that money may be coming from various parties like money launderers, for example, or even terrorist organizations. And it would be very difficult for financial institutions to really take on full responsibility for all of that stuff if they kind of are freed from the regulatory mandate to do so and the competitive pressures of the market and the nature of the technology makes it so that, you know, they just basically let it go. So it's not necessarily such an easy solution from the public perspective, from the regulatory and policymakers' perspective to relax regulations on banks. So another perspective for the banks would be, well, we just squash fintechs, all right? We just basically drive them out. And that probably was uh, the initial response, you know, they're, they're too small, they're never going to scale up. But that usually doesn't work because as soon as the customers kind of get a taste of, you know, using their iPhone to look across all of their investments or to transfer money across borders or make certain investments that generate higher profits, then customers will demand those kinds of products, right? So another way of dealing with this fintech threat for the regulated financial institutions is to incorporate fintech challengers into the existing structure of financial institutions and sort of absorb them and merge with them and kind of find quote-unquote synergies there. And that's probably most likely where we're going right now with fintech. But that, of course, does not necessarily remove this general concern with what the scope of financial regulation should be in this newly emerging world when the technology enables much faster transactions and transactions on a much higher scale, on the scale that was completely inconceivable even 20 years ago. And when the code, the algorithm, basically becomes the repository of a lot of policy decisions and a lot of substantive decisions about where the money flows and at what price the money basically gets extended to a particular players in the market and what kind of rights even those various players, individual players in, in the financial market get in exchange for their money, for their funds. All of that stuff now can be actually subsumed 
in the software, in the code writing. And that is a lot different from, for example, regulators looking at disclosure in a particular document that is written in plain English. That's how in the old days, right, even now, institutions or firms used to actually explain to you as an investor, for example, what kind of rights you get when you part with your money and buy a stock in a particular company. But now when you're making a digital investment and everything is moving through some kind of a blockchain, everything is encrypted and everything, all of these relationships that you're entering into are actually encoded in an algorithm that only few very, very smart programmers hopefully understand, but no regulators understand fully and you may not understand fully what do we do with all of these regulatory goals and policies and, you know, the, the principles underlying financial regulation, investor protection, market integrity, safety and soundness of in individual financial institutions, and so on and so forth, systemic risk. What do we do with all of that? How do we redefine those kinds of concepts for this new brave world in which so much more money is moving and so many more risks are created? but so little transparency exists. Building on that transparency piece, it's only natural that privacy is a major area of concern. As fintech continues to evolve and we see more of this convergence effect between banks and the tech companies, how should we think about the increased level of information sharing that takes place as a result of that and its implications for consumer privacy? Information sharing is actually the perfect example or the perfect area that exemplifies the extremely hard trade-offs that are involved in today's policymaking when it comes to fintech. Information has always been the lifeblood of the financial system. Ultimately, all of these claims, financial claims, financial instruments that are flowing through the financial system, they're really based on uh, information, you know, uh, about the issuers of those claims and so on and so forth. But with the invention of new financial technologies, information quite literally becomes the gold, the lifeblood of finance. Now we have all of those digital tokens, right? They're literally bits of data, digitized data, that now acts as essentially quasi-money, or at least uh, can act as quasi-money. So what do we do with respect to protecting sensitive information that a lot of people out there may or may not want to be shared widely on the one hand and allowing the free flow of information on the other hand in order to enable those new applications, those new technological methods of enabling financial transactions, faster, more convenient transactions, higher volume transactions among different participants in financial markets to exist. So on the one hand, you know, it would be great, for example, if banks were allowed or even encouraged to share the information on their customers' banking data with uh, various fintech companies that provide various financial apps to various customers. So for example, if a particular customer wants to download an app on their phone through which they can make payments for a variety of reasons, right? Or maybe transfer money from their bank account into their investment account or do anything of that nature. The problem becomes that that particular financial technology company, the fintech company that is not itself a bank, may need to have access to the bank account information or access to the bank account of that particular customer. 
And that information is guarded by the bank, the regulated entity that is subject to laws and regulations, and uh, that is very importantly subject to liability. If some of that important bank account customer data gets misused, for example, if somebody gets access to my bank account data and then withdraws money from my account, my bank may very well be still on the hook for making me whole for that withdrawal, even though it was not directly the fault of that bank, because that's the system that is currently set up. And that's why the bank is very reluctant to allow all these million of startup fintech app providers that are themselves not regulated to allow access to their bank customers' data. But what do you do with respect to allowing those applications to function, right? Because without access to that bank uh, data, it's very difficult to provide those types of services. So right now, there is a lot of kind of very real struggle in that sphere, in that area with respect to how to enable kind of the proper data sharing by uh, strictly regulated banking institutions with various tech service, financial services providers in order to enable some of these applications to exist on the one hand, and yet not to allow too much of that free kind of potentially abusive access to very sensitive customer data to uh, fintech companies. And one of the solutions that is currently debated and probably is likely to be adopted was kind of to encourage the banks to kind of migrate a lot of their bank customer data to uh, kind of centrally managed clouds, right? So cloud computing, cloud storage of the data, and adopt various other technological solutions like APIs or whatever they're called in order to make it easier for a variety of fintech service providers that themselves are not regulated, like those app providers, for example, to access directly bank customer data if they are admitted into that universe, right, that is supposed to be overseen by this sort of, you know, uh, set of banks and other financial institutions and technology companies uh, playing in that area. And on the one hand, it seems like it's best to kind of allow that process to happen and manage that process, right? In other words, we, you know, then have a chance to establish standards, for example, for how these APIs should be operating, how this data should be shared, so that all the standards are uniform and all of, uh, all of that stuff is sort of, you know, checked. But on the other hand, think about what happens to that data. So right now, for example, Amazon is one of the major iCloud services providers, right? So if uh, Amazon or any other big tech company starts providing this storage services for a lot of banks' sensitive customer data that is currently not housed on any cloud, but actually managed in-house, literally there is a, you know, the closed universe at each bank, which costs them a lot of money to maintain because they have to maintain those IT systems internally. But now it will all be available on some iCloud, right? And then all of these other app providers can access the data on that cloud because everybody can now enter through that door. But somebody controls that cloud, right? Somebody controls that data and manages that data. What prevents that company, let's say Amazon, hypothetically, right? From actually using its ability to see that data across the board, everybody's sensitive flow of money in and out of their bank accounts on a, on a real-time basis, and then use that data for their own commercial purposes 
in order to reach the same bank customers when they act in their other capacities like buyers of products or sellers of products or consumers of other services and start selling them the products, for example, with the full knowledge of those individuals' ability to pay based on the balances in their bank accounts, for example, or based on the data that shows the spending patterns or the payment patterns that uh, characterize each person's life, essentially. And the easiest example in that respect would be, again, Amazon, right? So Amazon maintains a marketplace where a lot of us buy books and video tapes or whatever they're called. It's not tapes, of course. But, you know, we buy everything on Amazon and, you know, clothes, everything, maybe cars. So now Amazon is not just a platform for merchanting goods, but Amazon in its capacity as an iCloud service provider, if it's capable of seeing through the individual bank account data for all of us now can sell us these products based on the pricing that reflects not some kind of a you know fair price for a particular product but based on each person's individual bank account and so that you know i will be probably charged more than a poor graduate student somewhere right at cornell and maybe some will say well that's no big deal but it is a big deal because the benefit of that kind of quote-unquote dynamic prices is going to one particular company. And that leads to an extreme concentration of economic power and then political power in the hands of a particular company. And are we willing to accept or are we even capable of understanding the full economic and socio-political implications of the world in which just the simple act of allowing data sharing through these cloud services and through the simple act of not thinking actually about the institutional structure of who runs that infrastructure for those data services, right? Are they private companies or are they perhaps public utility companies or should they be public utilities companies? Through that act, kind of a micro act, right? All we care about is allowing certain fintech apps to operate on our iPhones. We may end up in the world where the entire political process is owned by a handful of large companies. So in this hypothetical, does a tech company like Amazon, who could have access to this financial information and could act on it, start to look like a financial institution? And if it does, should we be thinking about this company's systemic importance in the financial industry? Yes, of course. In this particular hypothetical, Amazon will be a financial institution. Amazon is a financial institution anytime it offers a credit product, for example, any kind of loan or anything of that nature to customers. But what makes this particular hypothetical especially scary is that the nature of the systemic importance of Amazon or anything like Amazon doesn't have to be this particular company. Amazon is just a symbol for a conglomerate that kind of combines such incredible power as a financial institution on the one hand and incredible power as a a commercial enterprise on the other hand. That is what makes this particular scenario so scary. And it is especially scary because to this day, actually one of the fundamental principles of our financial regulation, our banking regulation in particular, is the principle of separating quite strictly financial services, banking services, from commercial enterprise. In other words, the idea is that if you are a bank, if you are in charge of 
essentially extending credit and uh, channeling money to its most productive uses in the real economy, you cannot have also some subsidiaries or affiliated companies that also are selling goods and services in commerce because then it creates a lot of conflicts of interest, right? You might want to actually refuse credit to very trustworthy and creditworthy companies because they're competing with your affiliated commercial service providers or commercial sellers of goods. And that kind of power would not only hurt individual companies that are competitors of your affiliated entities, but it would hurt the economy as a whole because it would effectively create unnecessary artificial distortions in the economy. And for those reasons and uh, the broader reasons of sort of keeping finance as neutral as possible in terms of keeping it sort of as efficient as possible and preventing it from becoming this sort of a lever of excessive economic power and political power, it's for those reasons that we still have the laws that essentially prohibit J.P. Morgan for example, right, from running the kind of a commercial marketplace that Amazon runs. So JP Morgan cannot very well just open a platform on which it sells books and audio and cars and clothes and food products. But Amazon is not subject to any of such restrictions. The only problem for Amazon with respect to entering financial services is that it cannot really cross into the world of banking products so that it would be required to acquire a banking charter. But now with all these technologies, it can do pretty much all kinds of other products that would effectively or can effectively replicate a banking product without necessarily being regulated as such. So in light of all that, what should we do to adapt the public-private balance in the financial industry to better deal with these new economic realities created by fintech? This Jack is, I would say, the quadrillion dollar question. If I had an answer to that question, I would probably demand the Nobel Prize. Unfortunately, I don't have it yet. But here's how to maybe think about it. The natural tendency to answer these types of question is to essentially scale up or grab onto the crutch of what we already know. So a lot of the answers to this question in the world of fintech would center around let's improve disclosure, for example, of various, you know, fintech companies providing fintech services, let's impose certain disclosure obligations on them. Or let's, for example, create a regulatory status for certain fintech companies that are currently not regulated as financial institutions, crypto exchanges, provide the best example of that kind of an institution, right? So right now, in the world of crypto assets, a lot of the trading in crypto assets, Bitcoin, Ether, whatever you call them, is a result of the existence of uh, crypto exchanges in which somebody, the exchange, essentially guarantees to you that you can always swap your particular idiosyncratic coin for either US dollar or pound sterling or some other coin and vice versa. In effect, you can monetize, you can turn your non-sovereign backed crypto asset into a unit of sovereign currency, sovereign money. And that's why a lot of investors are willing to play in that market. So the problem, of course, with these crypto exchanges is that they, in many ways they replicate much more familiar traditional securities exchanges. 
and they raise a host of similar problems, regulatory problems. For example, an exchange should be able to monitor, for example, for fraud or for abuse of trust, right, of all the players who avail themselves of the exchange's services. People should be able to trust the exchange that if they put the money in an account that is basically housed by that particular crypto exchange, that that money will not be stolen because uh, some stupid thing happened. Oh, you know, the key to a particular crypto wallet got lost. Regular securities exchanges, you know, have also dealt with all these questions hundreds of years ago, you know, and the current regulation has various tools of how to kind of make sure that the exchange actually itself monitors everybody's behavior on the quote-unquote exchange floor, even though now it's a completely virtual floor. So now uh, there is a strong push, not only by public interest advocates, but also very importantly by the industry itself for the creation of a special regulatory regime for crypto exchanges that tracks the regulatory regime for traditional securities exchanges, mostly for, you know, the market integrity reasons, anti-fraud provisions, and so on and so forth, to make sure that, you know, nobody who shouldn't really be playing on the floor actually gets to play on that floor. And the question becomes, is that a good move or is it not such a good move? On the one level, of course, undoubtedly, it is a great thing to create a regulatory structure that inserts those types of considerations and creates those types of liabilities and rules for any crypto exchange. Because ultimately, people put their resources, people put their money in the hands of these exchanges. They don't want to worry about, you know, some key to the crypto wallet being lost or this exchange not maintaining proper cybersecurity procedures so that uh, the exchange gets hacked and all the money gets lost. So it's a great thing to create those kinds of regulatory oversight procedures and mechanisms and basically legitimize the operation of, of these crypto exchanges. On the other hand, however, if you just take a step back and look at it from a broader sort of systemic stability perspective, wouldn't the creation of such a familiar regime that targets one familiar specific problem, right? Protect individual investors, individual customers from fraud or from losses and so on and so forth, somehow create this false sense of legitimacy of crypto asset trading so that to remove a lot of the caution among institutional investors like mutual funds, maybe pension funds, insurance companies, banks in their capacity as investors in financial markets, the caution that currently makes them weary of putting a lot of money into crypto asset trading. They're weary right now because it seems to them that this is a wild west of finance. These crypto exchanges are not properly regulated. These kinds of losses can happen. Nobody's really checking into, you know, who's selling, who's buying and whatnot. But if there is a regulatory scheme that somehow creates that notion that, look, if you go with a crypto exchange X, then you can be assured somebody is looking at crypto exchange X and it's been certified, it's been licensed, it has cybersecurity procedures, it has know your customer procedures, so don't worry about it, put your money in. Then suddenly we can see billions of dollars flowing into crypto asset trading that previously would not flow into crypto asset trading. And that raises the next question, is that a good thing or not? Again, perhaps for individual fund managers who now can hedge their portfolios or who can invest in Bitcoin or some other coin that goes up and up, 
for that period of time while it's going up and up it might be a very good thing to put more of their money in crypto assets but we all know how bitcoin's value fluctuates so today bitcoin's value is not exactly the same as it was a year and a half ago right so would that be a good thing for fund managers to kind of be subjected to that volatility perhaps not so much but even a big question is is it a good thing to divert a lot of the capital that ordinarily would flow maybe in the hands of real economy producers, companies, enterprises that actually are trying to build factories, develop technologies, produce new goods, offer new services that would generate greater employment in the U.S. economy, that would put more money in the hands of actual consumers who can then turn around and buy more goods and more services produced by various other companies and thereby generate more and more wealth in the economy instead of flowing into that sector of the economy if we somehow open up the crypto asset trading as a quote-unquote safer or comparably legitimate way for all that institutional money to flow into then we might actually be further starving the real economy of the capital that it so desperately needs so this dilemma around legitimizing crypto exchanges gets us back to a decoupling of the real and financialized economy that in many ways helped cause the crisis in the first place. You're absolutely right. Like many things in life, you know, nothing new is entirely new. It's just the same old thing frequently in a new guise. And what's happening in the area of fintech it, on many levels it is replaying a lot of the lessons, a lot of the problems and a lot of the solutions and a lot of the second order problems that were generated by virtue of those solutions only on a much higher level of both public salience and potential systemic relevance and potential danger of systemic disruption. Precisely because now, you know, there is a lot more money moving much, much faster and in much, much more complex and difficult to control, difficult to see virtual space. So it's in that sense, this is exactly the problem of how much more control do we cede to private market actors to essentially play this game of creating new financial instruments like crypto assets or various coins that uh, you know may or may not actually be socially beneficial in the long run. Should at some point the public somehow insert its own interest right there into that process with respect to figuring out to what extent some of this crypto trading might actually only increase the level of socially destructive speculation and starve the real economy of capital, but also increase the volatility of the financial system in general and increase the chance of the next crisis when the bill on that credit card, right, might be many, many times bigger than what we uh, were handed back in 2008. And are we prepared for that? So if you think about it that way, then a couple of lessons sort of should stand out, right? One is that it's never enough to end your inquiry into whether or not something is good or bad for us as a society at the level of, is it generating some benefit for the immediate transacting parties? Because frequently, yes, it does. If it didn't generate any benefits for anybody, we wouldn't be talking about it. It wouldn't be an important thing. What you have to always think about is the trade-off between the good 
that the benefit that a, a particular innovation generates for many transacting parties on the micro level on the one hand, and the potential complication for the society as a whole, for the financial system or the economic system, on the other hand, that that same benefit can create down the road. How do we balance those two? It's very difficult. The second thing you have to think about is, is it sufficient to just keep reusing the same regulatory tools that we've been using at least since the 1930s? In many cases, before the 1930s, in this new world, when the salience of the systemic, the structural, the macro, the public element of everything that happens every day in the life of the financial system is increased to such an unprecedented level. Perhaps we should rethink the toolkit. Perhaps instead of just mandating disclosure or licensing, perhaps instead of just looking at the equity cushion of an individual entity, be it a bank or be it a crypto exchange, perhaps we should be thinking about inserting the public instrumentalities right into the center of the crypto markets themselves. And I realize that this is opening a whole new can of worms. But this is where we are going to find ourselves. I believe, you know, inevitably that question will arise. Should the Federal Reserve issue its own digital currency and end the capacity or, you know, end this sort of trend toward all kinds of institutions creating their own digital uh, coins in order to facilitate the trading, potentially speculative trading in various crypto assets, for example? Should we do it for that purpose? if not for the purpose of maintaining, for example, our monetary sovereignty and the ability to check or control the supply of money. How much should we care about what happens in the world of crypto trading with a view toward what kind of physical public infrastructure we have in this country? How are those two connected? Guess what? Those things are incredibly intimately connected. It's just we are not yet used to talking about that connection. And I believe that the next step in the conversation about financial regulation and fintech and Amazon and the new sort of antitrust problems that are arising with the rise of huge technology companies that are now moving into every sector of the economy and with the news like the news of today, JP Morgan inventing its own cryptocurrency to facilitate wholesale payments by their clients. All of these disparate issues, complex in their own rights, ultimately will come to this one fundamental question. How much control are we as a sovereign public, collective we, the American sovereign public, you know, whose full faith and credit really is flowing through the financial system? How much control are we willing to see to individual members of the public acting in their own private interest? And how much control are we willing to reclaim from all those individual private market participants? Professor Amarova, thank you so much for coming on to Present Value today. We would love to have you back on the podcast one day, especially once you or anyone else answers that quadrillion dollar question. Thank you. I hope it will be me. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. Michael Brady, Harrison Job, Bernardo Espinoza, Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, Serena Alavia, James Feld, and Jonathan Tin. I'm your host for this episode, Jack Moriarty. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomango. 
Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.